Hello everyone and welcome to Autism Stories, where we connect you with amazing people that help autistic teens and adults become more independent and successful. I'm your host, Doug Bletcher, the founder of Autism Personal Coach. Research doesn't tell us much about the experiences of fathers whose children are diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder, but especially for African-American fathers. On this episode, we discuss this with Dr. Michael Hannon, who wrote his dissertation, Love Him and Everything Will Fall Into Place, on this very important topic. We hope you enjoy today's conversation. Dr. Hannon, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. I wanted to start and learn... Where does your story in the autism community begin? Close to 15 years ago. My, I have two children. Uh, my daughter is con- would be considered um, neurotypical, and um, she's a 17-year-old young lady in her senior year of high school. And my son is 15 years old, and um, he would be considered neurodiverse. He was diagnosed uh, with, all, with pervasive developmental disorder, not otherwise specified. Somewhere between 2005 and 2006, uh, because he was 21 months at the time. And um, that was our, my, and I I think it's safe to say my wife's first introduction to autism spectrum disorder. That's that's where it began for for me and for us and our family. So after your son's diagnosis, you went back to graduate school for a doctorate in counselor education and supervision. Why was that of such importance to you? Because at the time, from what I read about you, you had a job you really liked with great benefits. Yeah, um, it, was, it was motivated by a few different reasons. Uh, the first was that I always had a professional goal to get a terminal degree. In, in my earlier aspirations, before my children, or at least certainly before Avery was born, Avery's my son, I envisioned myself uh, being uh, a vice president or a dean of student services or dean of student affairs in a, in a four-year college setting. I, I worked in student affairs where uh, you may be familiar, professionals who have um, helping skills background and programmatic skill background and training provide services for students on college campuses. So that could be anything that ranges from working in the financial aid office to academic advising to student activities and student leadership development, aspire to get a terminal degree in higher education or higher education administration. Because of the way my career transpired and its trajectory, um, I transitioned into school counseling. And I was able to work with with high school students in particular as a high school counselor. And that was really great because it it blended my experience working in higher education, uh, particularly with students of color, and helping helping them discover or rediscover and sharpen their leadership capacity. And then transitioning to school counseling, it married my, um, my interest, my professional interest and my personal values in helping students on pathways to get college degrees. Um, and I really fell in love with the, with the school counseling role, working with K-12 students, particularly high school students. I was having a really good time professionally. It was, it was personally fulfilling. And when we learned about Avery's diagnosed difference, it really began to raise questions for me about how autism in particular, but you know, developmental differences more broadly, how they influence family systems. And because I was um, now working in a more 
explicitly clear counseling role as a school counselor, providing individual and small group short-term counseling for students in high school settings, um, working on college advising and career advising. Um, I really began to be curious about how autism affected families, and I was watching it play out in my own house. Uh, my children are only 19 years apart. I mean, I'm sorry, 19 months apart. So um, when Avery didn't have expressive language, I think for quite some time, my daughter interpreted that as um, him not wanting to engage with her. Uh, you know, we would we would have to field questions. We, meaning my wife and me, we'd have to field questions like, "How come he doesn't want to play with me?" or "How come he doesn't like me?" And us having to share with her in ways that were developmentally appropriate that that wasn't about her. That was about how he was different and how he just didn't have the words at that moment in his life. But over time, we hoped that he would be able to develop the words and develop uh, a clearer indication of his love for her that she could understand, if that makes sense. So once I became clear about those questions that I had, um, it changed my interest in terminal study. And I wanted to get a counseling, a terminal counseling degree um, so that I could help other families possibly and um, develop a set of research skills that I could investigate it empirically to be able to hopefully provide the counseling community and allied mental health and behavioral health colleagues and professionals some insight about what happens with families. Now that led to you writing your dissertation on an analysis of narratives of African-American fathers of children with autism spectrum disorders. I had not heard of such a dissertation before on, a really, on this really important topic. Why did you decide to focus on this? Yeah, I think it happened kind of organically. Um, I went in to my doctoral studies after having worked for about 10 years. Um, and so I was pretty clear about, about what I thought my dissertation would be. And, you know, broadly, uh, I'm assuming you, you have a, a pretty clear understanding about, you know, the psychosocial, psychosocial aspects of autism or the psychosocial aspects of disability and how one person's diagnosed difference um, influences the other people in his or her life. life. So I walked into my doctoral studies thinking, oh, I'm going to study like the sibling relationship and how this diagnosis um, influences sibling relationships and the sibling dynamic. Over the course of my studies, with, and with the support of my committee and my family members and, and colleagues and friends and people who love us, it became clear to me that I was more curious about father's experiences. Um, one, because of the natural tie to my own experience, and then um, I really began to realized that there wasn't a lot of published research about dads' experiences raising, loving, caring for their children with um, any forms of autism. And so my committee, my wife, and other loved ones were like, hey, Mike, this, is, um, this could be really valuable in helping people better understand dads' experiences with this, and particularly black fathers, because while fathers in general were underrepresented in research, Black fathers were significantly less underrepresented, <laughs> underrepresented in research. And so um, it was really like, forgive the euphemism, but it was kind of like a, a perfect storm that really justified me seeking answers to the questions I had. Thinking about um, when you were doing 
this dissertation and research and all of that and where we are today, where do you feel like things have changed in terms of research and information about African-American fathers of those that, that are autistic? Yeah, I think, I think we've made some progress. I think the scientific community, the autism community in general, clinicians, therapists, um, advocates, parents, like, so we know more than we did. Um, and I think that's important, but there's certainly uh, much more to learn. And there are people who are doing great things that, um, that help inform what we know or even what we think we know. And it's not solely by way of, of like empirical research. And is that important? It is. Empirical research is important. Absolutely. Because in the same way doctors um, refer to their professional journals, medical journals, to learn about the newest interventions, the newest discoveries, well, so do mental health and allied mental health professionals, counselors, psychologists, psychiatrists. They, they go to their journals. And so being published in those journals help inform interventions and inform the knowledge base. But there's other things that take place in, in the communities where you and I live where people are sharing what they know by way of their experience. So I'm thinking of a couple of examples. One, um, there's a, a, a major initiative in the state of Washington. There's a guy by the name of Greg Shell. Um, and um, he started the Washington Fa Washington State Fathers Network, where he uh, and colleagues of his were able to really launch an initiative that dads of kids with all kinds of differences, intellectual differences, cognitive differences, developmental differences, and began to really think long and hard about how do we best support dads in this experience. And so the Washington Father State Network is a, is a, is a great, great resource. Uh, the SIB support project, the sibling support project, um, is a, a great resource that's, that's born out of some of the work done in Washington. Um, and, uh, and Don Meyer in particular, uh, along with Greg Shell, they've done some really great work in that regard, um, providing educational materials and advocacy work for siblings of people, um, who have learning developmental cognitive differences. And then there's stuff like, um, stuff that's like consumable by like a, a broader audience. Uh, Charles Jones uh, created the film, the documentary called Autistic Like Me. And he literally documented a retreat of men, of children with autism, uh, uh, engaging with each other, asking hard questions, being vulnerable, being honest and candid, um, and in some ways that are pretty rough to, to watch and listen to, but it's, it's, it's so valuable. So those things are accessible just by, you know, Googling autistic like me or Googling Charles Jones. He's, a, he's an awesome filmmaker. Um, and then you have folks like Robert Nassif, who arguably is probably the leading voice in our country about um, the psychosocial aspects of autism on families and particularly uh, fathering children and individuals with autism. Um, and he's got at least two books out that speak to this experience. And then you have like um, more visible people, even more visible people like Rodney and Holly Pete who Rodney, mm -hmm. uh, Rodney Pete, the former NFL quarterback, uh, wrote a book called um, Not My Son. And they have an adult child with autism now, but back then, you know, RJ, which is their son's name, he was a, he was a you know, an adolescent and even, even pre-adolescent, and they were talking about their experiences, and they continue to be on the forefront of advocating for families and supporting families and funding projects. Doug Flutie, uh, who runs the Doug Flutie Foundation. And so... 
I use all these examples to say, yeah, is there research going on that's being published in journals? Absolutely, and that's important. But there are other resources that are accessible to people who may not be inclined to to dig into a, a peer-reviewed <laughs> medical <laughs> or counseling journal where they can find like really relevant information. And then, you know, everybody, all of us who are affected by this experience, you know, we have our own ways of sharing our story, whether it's um, creating our own small nonprofit organizations or doing community-based work, hosting conferences and meetings and things like that, where we're sharing and learning from one another to better support each other and the children who deserve our love and, and care. An important question you asked from your dissertation was how do African-American men describe their fathering experiences as fathers of children with autism spectrum disorders? How did you go about collecting data for this essential question? Yeah, so I'm, I'm really got, I'm going to spill out the nerd in me, so <laughs> hold tight. Um, how did I go about it? Well, d- depending on your, your knowledge and comfort with you know, research methods, I wanted to do a qualitative study um, as opposed to a quantitative, quantitative study or a mixed method study. And qualitative studies are usually designed largely to investigate a topic in depth. What I wanted to do, I wanted to use a research design that allowed these men to tell their stories. And the, the research design I used was basically a narrative analysis. So I essentially went to these men. I interviewed them three times a piece. There were six guys six black fathers, black American fathers, and I interviewed them three times a piece. So I had literally had 18 interviews worth of data asking them about their stories, asking them to recall and recant stories. And and what I attempted to do was to take all of those individual stories from the six different men over three interviews and do my best to create one um, coherent narrative about their experience. And so each of those guys had a separate chapter in my dissertation, individually recalling their stories, my interpretation of them, and then me obviously me confirming that I understood what they were saying and and they agreed with what I shared, but also um, a more summative kind of account of what this experience was like and has been for them as uh, as men. So there's an issue of gender in there. We're certainly looking at issues of ability status because we're talking about their children who were diagnosed with autism. Um, and sometimes they had multiple diagnoses. And then, so there's a, there's, a, there's a dimension of ability status. And then lastly, there's certainly an issue of race in there and paying attention to if and how race influences their broader experiences. And so it was my intent to really just hear what they had to say, interpret it in a way that was accurate, and then convey it in a way that gave their individual accounts a more comprehensive um, account. And one question you asked during your interviews was how the fathers have helped others understand their child's diagnosis. What type of responses did you get from them? What I would say is there there tends to be some assessment of risk in sharing, and one, in being present in, in a range of spaces. So... What I mean by that is these guys have to determine where they want to be with their children who may be uh, affected by autism and how welcoming or not those spaces might be depending on who's there. And so them assessing 
the safety of those spaces and what kinds of responses they anticipated receiving if and when their children's symptoms would emerge and people might not be knowledgeable or empathic about what they saw. So um, there's certainly almost like a risk assessment that takes place and determining who's safe and, and what spaces are safe and what places aren't safe. Um, and a lot of that is determined by uh, prior knowledge. Like if I'm going to a space where they're, if I'm taking my, if, if they're taking their kids to other spaces where there might be children who have learning differences or developmental differences, the risk that might not be as great. Um, but uh, if they're going to spaces where they've been invited and they don't know a lot of people, but it's a family event and, you know, they wrestle with, hey, do we take the children? Do we don't take the children? Do we not take the children? And being ready to be, um, one, inundated with questions possibly. Hey, what's up with your kid? Hey, your, 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 your son or your daughter seems a little different. Like those kinds of questions, even if they're genuine and sincere, to uh, you know, being explicitly stigmatized um, with language like, hey, you know, we can't accommodate that. Or, hey, your child's being a, a disruption right now in the midst of this particular program or event. Um, and so the risk assessment was a big deal depending on who was going to be there and who wasn't. The other kind of response I got certainly acknowledged um, the kind of influence they had in those spaces. So even if I was going to a space where, or if, if, if any of these guys were going to spaces where they didn't have uh, current relationships with people or people who knew them and knew the, the reputation that they had possibly in the community. So there were, there were guys in my dissertation, these volunteers, some of them were visible business leaders in their community or just general leaders in their community. They were... They had family who taught in the school districts where their children went to school for years, literally generations. And so that kind of capital and influence sometimes shielded them from the kind of responses that they might get otherwise if people didn't know who they were or didn't know the context of their family. And so the, the responses ranged, but certainly they were acutely aware of where they were going, who was going to be there. And who would be sensitive enough to respond with compassion if and when their children's symptoms may be misunderstood. Did the fathers give you any indication if they felt more isolated from the community, kept more to themselves and their children at home because of the responses they would get? Yeah, absolutely. I think what I'm, what I'm learning and continuing to learn as I as I go through my own experience and then engage, try to engage with other fathers of, of individuals with autism, um, I found um, in my dissertation and in subsequent work that I've done, it can be a very isolating experience. And I, I think that's fairly generalizable among all parents and caregivers of people with, with autism, that they feel isolated because if your, fr your friend group and your social group, if they have neurotypical children, then there's not really much to connect. There may not be as much to connect on. There may not be as many connection points, particularly as you're talking about fathering and raising your kids and what might be considered typical benchmarks of, of development and progress. So it could be it could be fairly isolating. So yeah, there 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 were stories and um, recollections of them saying, hey, you know what, that's not quite the space I want to go to, or hey, I don't feel like I'm not up to the challenge of having to describe and detail how and why my kid may be different from the other kids that are in the space. Things as, as simple as going to the playground or deciding not to go to the local playground to 
not wanting to go, not wanting to to go to the to to, to well doctor visits possibly because um, for fear of hearing um, what might be considered more devastating or news or prognoses that are hard to make sense of. And so yeah, there there were certainly times when when these guys decide, hey, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna tap out in this moment, or I'm gonna I'm gonna refrain from engaging in this particular moment because of because of the demands mm-hmm. and because I feel isolated. And did they have some words of wisdoms to other fathers whose child was maybe just being diagnosed with autism? Yeah, they, they certainly did. Um, I think the most consistent message uh, that I heard, and I'm doing my best to, to kind of summarize, was it's to consider and, and really take, take note of the kinds of capital or resources that you have what I've learned over the course of several years in interviewing dads and kids with autism, particularly dads of color, is it's an, it's important to know the kind of resources you have at your disposal. And so for, for folks who are, for dads, black fathers, Latino fathers, um, and white fathers, who are, are getting the initial diagnosis, it's try to be present and in the moment, even though it's hard not to think about the future and what the future may hold for their children and for their family as a result of this diagnosis, but to also take take stock of the kind of resources you have at your disposal. And those resources or that capital comes in a number of ways, whether it is monetarily, hey, do I have a good job um, that can pay for therapeutic services over the course of my kid's life? It could be resources by way of like social capital. Who's in my network? Who do I know? Even though I may not be a doctor, do I know doctors? Do I know school leaders? Um, do I know therapists and things like that? And certainly like uh, another form of influence is, is cultural capital. You know, can I, can I go into a school and speak the language of school professionals so that I don't, I'm not marginalized as a result of not knowing what an IEP stands for or a 504 plan stands for or multi-tiered systems of support, MTSS. You know, these are the kinds of things that in the community, particularly of therapeutic professionals, we, we and other folks talk like that and use that kind of language. And we may not be as in tune to what our parents and caregivers know and don't know with that language. And so fathers are really taken into account what kind of resources that they have. And these guys talked about taking account into the resources, taking account of the resources that they have in order to position themselves and their children for as high a quality of life as possible. And uh, the other thing that I, I think it's safe to say that they shared was it's absolutely critical that you find community. Mm-hmm. However that comes, if that means going to a support group, cool. If that means connecting with um, other folks in, in your child's school district who you know share similar identities, you know, these are all teenagers who have autism you know, and, and the symptoms present themselves in a variety of ways. But listen, you know what it's like to have, uh, have your kid um, having a, a reaction to being over, overstimulated by, by way of his sensory needs or her sensory needs. So finding community usually with other men who have the same or have a similar lived or shared experience becomes critical because then you don't feel like you're on an island. Then you don't feel isolated. And you can ask the questions that you want to ask other people with some confidence that they can they can address some of your concerns 
and give you some tips and pointers as you move across the lifespan. It's one thing to have a, a young child with autism and, and, the, and what may be what you might expect during that time versus adolescence going through puberty to transitioning to adulthood and depending on the severity of symptoms, does the child or can the child hold down a job successfully? Being able to broach those questions with people with more or less experience, it becomes, it becomes a lifeline. Um, and that's, that's, those are some of the things that I remember them sharing and some of the things, quite frankly, that I've heard even more recently as um, I engage with fathers of, of, of individuals with, with autism. Yeah, we, we all need community, that's for sure. Yeah. And did the fathers think that their experience changed being, being that they were fathers of color? Yes, for a couple different reasons. I think what, what the guys in, in my dissertation talked about was, um, I think the loudest message I heard was about trust. You know, unfortunately, in our country, while there are awesome service providers, hospitals, therapists, behavioral professionals, mental, mental health professionals, um, we can't, uh, we, we have to acknowledge how and why people who have been marginalized, namely people of color and black folks in our country, how and why they may be resistant to following the advice or trusting with a full heart the recommendations, uh, the assessments and opinions of, of service providers because there, are, there, are, there still seem to be great disparities in quality of care and access to care. Mm-hmm. And so in the back of many of uh, the minds of the guys who participated in my dissertation, you know, they would question, hey, am I getting the same quality of service that another family would get in here if they were white? Because in most cases, their service providers were, were white people. Great folks um, who might be providing an awesome scope of services, but the question was persistent, like, hey, can I trust this? Can I trust this teacher? Can I trust this developmental pediatrician? Um, am I getting the full suite and complement of services that I'm entitled to? Are there assumptions made about my child who's on the autism spectrum or my, my family because maybe I'm not uh, in a marital relationship with the mother of my mm-hmm. child and people have ideas and, and biases about you know uh, married couples versus non-married couples and there are stereotypes about um, absentee black fathers that uh, continue to persist even though data and evidence tell us that that's not the case. <laughs> so the difference for the, for the black fathers in part, maybe not in total, but in part was can I trust that I'm getting high quality, genuine service from the people who are signed and are ethically bound to provide me and my family with high quality service? Mm-hmm. So, And what about the types of support that they thought were most successful for, for their children? Uh, the, the types of support that were that, that seemed to be most helpful for them was um, again I'll, I'll go back to kind of finding community it's um, it's hard it's hard as a dad period right it's hard as a dad and, and I, I say that as genuinely as I can say it knowing that men have all kinds of privileges in our world and in our country but it's hard as a dad when um, dads make really intentional decisions to be engaged in the care of their children. Uh, beyond just being a financial provider, like fathering looks very differently than it did a generation ago and two generations ago, where men um, and dads are 
creating the kinds of experiences that they want so that it, it allows them to be more deeply engaged in their children's care. So there are a number of more stay-at-home dads than there have ever been in our country's history. And um, men are, are creating these opportunities where they can be more involved. But in doing so, when if and when they decide to seek support, when they, when they do seek support, many times those supports are largely attended by women, moms. And so for them to be able to find another dad who, who shares an experience, and then for them to be able to find another dad of color or a black father who shares an experience, who might be, their children may be uh, in the racial minority in, this, in the schools where they, where they attend or where their children attend, or even if they are in the numerical majority, many times still the, the teachers, the service providers, they still may be people from different racial and ethnic backgrounds, primarily white service providers and teachers and things like that. So to find another person who has a shared experience by way of ability status of their children and potentially a racial or ethnic shared experience based on that identity, um, it's like I said, it's like, a, it's like a lifeline. There's a hope that those dads can be much more honest, much more transparent in their own experiences which uh, provides them the opportunity to get the kind of feedback necessary to 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 learn to be to continue to continue to learn to be the right kind of help for their families and their children. Finding communities is what I would say with respect to the kinds of support that have been most helpful, particularly from other dads um, who might be black or or of color. Were there places where they found those people in the community? You know, it's interesting. Um, if and when they would take, uh, if and when they would take the risk of going to seek help, they might find them in support groups or connection groups, uh, but not as frequently. Uh, all of the men in my study, in my dissertation, they all identified as Christian men, and so their their faith and worship community provided a form of support. That even though uh, people in their faith community may not have had the same shared lived experience, there was another connection point by way of their faith, which gave, which helped develop and sharpen their uh, outlook or more have a, have a more positive outlook and, and really believe by faith that things would get better. And even if they didn't get better for themselves or their children, that um, they had what it took, their faith gave them what it took for them to be successful and to be a good dad and a good partner and a good family member. So uh, I think those were the places where um, they found a fair amount of support in their faith communities if and when they found dad's groups. The thing about dad's groups is what I've learned is sometimes, depending on who is sponsoring them, um, they can be uh, inconsistent. So you have a couple uh, with, some, uh, with, with some consistency and then they fall off and then you know, they never catch traction. And so being able to engage with their faith community, sometimes with, with other dads, if that was available, if that was a consistent form of support, and the other thing I would say is these guys in my study relied heavily on their wives. So these were all straight black men um, who were married to the biological mothers of their children. And so they relied heavily on the support that came from their wives to help them navigate, help them reconcile some of the challenges that they were facing whether that's you know they're feeling guilty, whether they're um, whether they were feeling pessimistic, that their their wives were a huge source of support in that moment. 
Now, personally for you, was there one or two takeaways from your dissertation that really stood out to you? Yeah, I'll try to say this as, as concisely as possible. I think um, a couple things come to mind. One, we have to continue. We as dads um, and then those of us who are in positions to, to help families living with autism, particularly families of color, but I think there's some general, again, I think there's some generalizability across racial and ethnic lines. To the extent we can, we, we have to work hard to maintain a strengths-based perspective that, that even though symptoms may be severe and even though what a dad may have expected in the relationship with his unborn son or daughter during pregnancy and then learning about the diagnosis and what that might mean for that child moving forward, that there are still strengths and assets that our children living with autism have. And so I say that as humbly as I can because I know that there are people who have children who aren't as affected, their symptoms are mild, and they sometimes present as neurotypical depending on um, who's, who's paying attention. But to, to maintain kind of a strengths-based perspective, a strength-based orientation, um, and to think about the rewards that come as a result. All these guys talked about how their fathering experiences have been personally transformational. They never would have believed that they could be as patient as they have become as a result of raising children with autism. They never would have believed that they would have valued things as simple as their children smiling during a selfie picture. Right, the things that we, we that we might take absolutely for granted, those things come as a result of having a strength based kind of perspective to say, listen, even though things may not be what I anticipated, there's still some there's still some reward and some value in my lived experience raising, loving, and caring for a person who's on the autism spectrum. The other thing I would say as a takeaway was to continue to assess that that capital that you have. Who's in your network? Who do you know? Who loves you unconditionally? Who can you go to for support? Who will listen to you without judgment? What kind of healthcare benefits do you have? Who who in your in your in your community might be able to give you a good recommendation for a really well endorsed developmental pediatrician? So thinking about who's in the network, so that you can leverage those networks for your care as dad and as and for the care of your your children who might be living on the spectrum. And then of course. You know, Doug, as a counselor, I'm always going to say we all, one takeaway for me is I can't underscore enough the value of professional counseling and mental health services. People do not have to be in crisis in order to seek mental health support. So for, for the guys and for men that I, I engage with even now, there's always value in going, if, if, if accessible, there's always value in going to see and talk to a professional who... Um, is knowledgeable about helping people set goals, attain goals, and if there are barriers to those goals, whether they be because of a, an acute circumstance or because there may be a diagnosis, you know, counseling and mental health support is critical. And there's more and more evidence that we see just by, by virtue of the, the socio-political climate in which we live um, that counseling and mental health support can only be helpful can largely be helpful. It, it, it can be it can be detrimental depending on <laughs> the kind of therapist that you see, um, and if that person is, is is able to help you reach your goals. But in large part, it can really be helpful in having a a balanced perspective, 
to taking things one day at a time um, and and fighting the urge to become um, fighting the the or resisting the potential to be overwhelmed when you think about the future and kind of taking one day at a time. Like those are the kinds of things that um, if folks have trouble doing, counselors can be of a, a great help and great resource. So those are some of the takeaways that, that come to mind for me. And your dissertation, you completed it in 2013. If you had to do your dissertation all over again, what have you learned since then <laughs> that would add some value to it? Oh, man. Um, I, I've just, I, I continue to be acutely aware of some of the things I said before. Like, uh, um, so I'll give you an example. Robert Nassif and I, who lives in the Philadelphia region, and I live in the Philly region as well, we're running, we're running a dad's group right now. We started in September, and um, it's, it's, uh, we'll have our third meeting uh, next weekend. And at the last meeting we had, the the tenor of of the space was very angry so the guys were kind of just sharing their stories um what's happened since the last meeting how you doing uh, just kind of doing a check-in and the anger was so palpable because guys were talking about essentially being hurt you know their children not having expressive language and not being able to communicate i love you right and a dad wanting to, those dads some of those dads wanting to hear i love you from their children, right? And that's, a, that's, that's, that's hard. And as people were talking about their anger, you know, we, Robert and I, we did our best to acknowledge it and let them express it. And then we challenged them to say, so what's happened over the last month that's been rewarding? What, what, what can you recall between the last time we met and that day? that made you smile, that gave you a sense of warmth and accomplishment and fulfillment based on your relationship with your children. And these guys started just kind of shouting and sharing all of these awesome moments that they have with their, with, that they had with their children. And so the, the, the example where I said that the son smiled during a selfie, that was one of them. And laughing about one one dad's son who whose logic was so clear that it made them laugh because somebody in the house said, Hey, I got to jump in the shower. And, and, and the child who's on the autism spectrum said, Hey, you better not jump in the shower or you might slip. Right. But that's appropriate, logical. That's an appropriate and logical response to what we consider as, you know, that's a euphemism, but it, it was, it was so funny to them that it just gave them, a sense of joy that their child was engaging with them in a socially appropriate way when they don't get those moments all the time. And so what have I learned since then is to, to do our best to acknowledge the rewards and the strengths, the rewards that come as a result of fathering and the strengths that come, that we, that we possess as a result of fathering and, and doing our best to find community so that we're not, so that we're not isolated. Dads, black fathers, uh, and fathers from other racial and ethnic groups, they, we, we seem to pay very particular attention to how we can provide for our children. And the provision, and while we know this, sometimes it's, it's, it's just as valuable to hear it, the provision is not solely financial. 
do I have a good job with good benefits? I can take care of my kids. Yes. Do I have a good retirement plan? Have I, do I have an executed will that in the event that something goes down, my kids will be taken care of? Absolutely. Those are all critical things for dads and black fathers in particular. But there's also the, uh, the emotional provision. I'm here. I'm present. I'm accessible. I'm working through these challenges. I'm celebrating these wins whether they be big wins or whether they be small wins, whether people perceive them to be big wins or whether people perceive them to be nothing significant, the emotional provision that these guys can provide and the opportunities that they have is, I don't don't even know if it's measurable, right? Like it's, it's something that we can't quantify because it's so rich and it's so valuable that to bypass it, we're doing ourselves a disservice. Dads are doing themselves a disservice if and when they can't get over some of the challenges and really consider how they personally get transformed and how they become better people as a result of the experience. Thinking about the support for their children, but I also think about the support for themselves and self-care is is so important. Yeah, absolutely. How... How the fathers talk about um, how they took care took care of themselves and currently continued to do so. Self care is a it's really relative to everybody's style. Um, so I think one of the tasks are for all of us, whether we're raising neurotypical children or or neurodiverse children, the task for self care is to find activities that feed our souls and make us feel good that are healthy one one father i remember very explicitly talking about how he walked every morning it gave him a sense of calm a sense of balance it gave him a sense of control albeit limited um that he 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 could he could in some way kind of steer and direct the course of his day or days um sometimes going away you know having having family and friends who might be willing to step in and care for their children um, and being able to then steal away for a weekend or a day or two um, for a little solace um, and respite. Those were things that they talked about. They certainly talked about their spiritual lives and how uh, their faith fed their soul, quite frankly. And so those were some of the more frequent uh, responses to taking care of themselves. I mean, they, they mentioned uh, working hard to find ways to nurture and invest in their marital relationships so that uh, conversations um, and uh, priorities were not solely their children who were on the spectrum. Uh, they talked about, particularly, particularly dads who had more than one child, um, making sure they were investing in the relationships that they had with their other children because, you know, many, many report. And there's research to suggest that siblings of children with autism and other differences, they feel like uh, their parents aren't as present and accessible because of their siblings' needs. And so those few things I'm remembering stood out to these guys when it was related to their self-care. And for those that are listening that want to read your dissertation, how do they go about doing so? Oh, well, they can... um, uh, I think there's a few different ways. One, they can always email me at my, my work email address where uh, they can always email me um, at my work ad- address at uh, Hannon, H-A-N-N-O-N-M-I at Montclair.edu. I, I, I'm a faculty member 
at Montclair State University in New Jersey. Um, but if they did a search, my dissertation title was called Love Him and Everything Else Will Fall Into Place, which was a quote directly taken from one of the fathers. And so if they, if they just did a search for Michael Hannon dissertation or Love Him and Everything Will Fall Into Place, or if they did a general search for African-American fathers of children or individuals with autism, there's not a lot, I think. I don't think there's, even even now in 2019, there's not a lot about father, black fathers of kids with autism. And so those kinds of general searches could probably yield uh, uh, my dissertation. But certainly emailing me is, is, is just, as, uh, just as, if not more, effective. And I'm just wondering, because your message is so important, do you ever do any like public speaking or talk at conferences on, on this topic? Oh yeah, um, absolutely. I, you know, I'm fortunate in that you know, for some audiences and for some folks, uh, professional organizations, they they find value in some of the stuff that I'm doing and learning. And so yeah, I I, I present and, and keynote with some frequency, and uh, get invitations like this uh, to be on podcasts like yours. Uh, Robert Nassif and I are going to be featured on a podcast. I think it's going to air tomorrow from Autism Speaks about fathering and autism. So. Um, certainly do that, and um, I'm happy to to determine if if invitations come. Happy to try to determine if there's a fit and if I can meet the need. Um, and if so, yeah, happy to happy to jump in and, and contribute. So uh, I do get those opportunities with some frequency. Well, Dr. Hannon, I really appreciated your time, and thanks for sharing your wisdom with us. Hey, Doug, I, I appreciate your time too. I, I did some homework, um, of course, after getting your invitation, and. Um, it's, a, it's admirable and, and necessary, the work that you're doing in, in providing personal coaching service for individuals um, with autism and supporting their families. So kudos to you and the work that you're doing. And uh, if, if, if there's opportunities for us to collaborate moving forward, I look forward to it. Thank you for listening to today's episode. And thank you so much to Dr. Hannon for the conversation. I really appreciated him touching on the importance of community because that is a cornerstone of the work of Autism Personal Coach. We all need community. Modern life can be challenging for anyone. When you're autistic, the world isn't designed with your unique traits in mind and everyday demands can feel insurmountable. At Autism Personal Coach, we celebrate neurodiversity by empowering adults and teens to be the best version of their authentic selves. The people we serve are the real experts. We're here to help your goals become a reality. To get an Autism Personal Coach for a loved one or yourself, all you have to do is email autismpersonalcoach at yahoo.com or call 216-336-5889 and request a coach today. On the next episode of Autism Stories, we will talk with Dr. Sarah Zate on helping to make medical appointments more productive for autistic people. Talk to you then. Takes us longer to complete.